0: I'm Ethan Weiss, and you're listening to Best Known Method, a podcast where we ask some of the most successful people how they approach making life's most important decisions, all with less-than-perfect information to guide them. In my professional life, I'm a preventive cardiologist and scientist at UCSF. I'm also a co-founder and advisor to Keto, a technology company that enables weight loss through the ketogenic diet. Dr. Sake Katherison is a cardiologist and scientist, who until recently was a professor of medicine at the Harvard Medical School, director of the Center for Genomic Medicine at Massachusetts General Hospital, and director of the Cardiovascular Disease Initiative at the Broad Institute. More on that later. Sake has a quintessential American story. Actually, it's better than quintessential, but I'll let him tell it. As much as anyone I know, and I know him well, Sake embodies the role of being a missionary in academic medicine and science. He chose a humongous problem to tackle, understanding the inherited basis of heart attack. He chose the right time to study it, and he never let go, like a dog on a pant leg. And arguably, he has contributed more to our understanding of how heart attack risk is inherited than anyone else on the planet. And perhaps it is his sense of mission that drives him so hard. His father had a heart attack as a young man, and Sake has acknowledged publicly that that his brother died seven years ago also of a heart attack. For sake, this is very personal. He recently made one of the boldest and most unconventional moves I've ever seen in deciding to give up his academic career and start a company, a company called Verve Therapeutics that he will lead as its CEO. It should not be a surprise that Verve is going to tackle big problems. And it should not be a surprise that many people, including me, have some skepticism that they will be able to pull it off. But Sake is not one to underestimate. He is special in so many ways, and I've been blessed to learn so much from him over the years. I've learned a lot during this chat we had in his office at the Broad. I trust
1: you will as well. I was born in a small village um, in Tamil Nadu, India, uh, called uh, Vramadi in 1971. I grew up in India for the first nine years of my life, and it's an interesting story where. I think a typical immigrant story where my father uh left India in 1975 to come to the United States to do a PhD in mechanical engineering at the University of Pittsburgh. Uh, he left behind my brother and me, came here with uh, my mom and my little sister. And so my brother and I, f- uh, from ages of four to nine, basically stayed with my grandparents and didn't see my parents for those five formative years. Uh And then he finished his PhD in 1980. Uh, had earned enough money to bring the, my brother and me to the United States. Came here. I distinctly remember a very long trip uh, from uh, Madras to Bombay to JFK. Uh, my father picked me up. Um, and we have some interesting stories maybe we can talk about uh, in terms of that first visit. But then, uh, yeah, I, I did my uh, elementary school in Pittsburgh. Um, And college at the University of Pennsylvania, and then came to Boston in 1992, and I've been here since. I came here for medical school at Harvard, and then uh, did all my clinical training, and have been a researcher at both uh, Broad and and Mass General Hospital for the last uh, 15 years or so.
0: So I want to go back, if it's okay, to your time in India, because it's pretty amazing. So when you got here, when you left India, how much English did you speak?
1: Um I went to an English medium school so so we went to a boarding school uh, as I said we were living with my grandparents my parents were here in the US we basically didn't talk to them for 5 years uh because remember there was like telephones were no Skype yeah no Skype no tele- I mean the only way we communicate with them was par avion you know the, the airmail and I had these like fantastic visions of what it was like, you know, to live in the U.S. and so forth. And anyway, so we would write letters once every couple of months. We were in this boarding school called uh, Maynard Memorial English School in Kota, India, and it was run by a German nun. And uh, so I, I, you know, all all of our uh, subjects were in English, so I had written English was fine, and spoken English was okay, but had a very thick accent. And it's actually a funny story. When I came, when I first came to S.B. Elementary School in Pittsburgh, uh, there was a contest within a few months of me coming to the United States that they had on why I'm proud to be an American. And I'd only been in this country for like four months, and it was you know the election year, and so that was kind of the reason. I think this was uh, this was a contest. So the entire school wrote an essay. You know, each person wrote an essay. I wrote a one-page essay. And the winner was to receive a prize of $1. And I won. And And then we had to go in front of, front of the entire school, and the winner had to read, each grade had to read their essay. And my friends from back then, uh, who I'm still very close with, always joke with me to this day that they had me up there, and they couldn't understand a single word I said because of how thick my accent was. But anyway, so since then... Um, it's been a wonderful time in this country.
0: And walk me through a little bit. I don't know how your, your father is still alive, or he?
1: Yeah, my father yeah. My father is, st- is still living. He uh, trained in mechanical engineering at the University of Pittsburgh, uh, was a systems engineer most of his career, retired a couple of years ago, actually last year. Um, and um, yeah, we have a strong family history of heart disease. I think I've Been very public about that. Um, So he had an MI um, in when he was 54. uh, I think I was a first year cardiology fellow. Actually, I remember being at the ACC in Orlando and getting a call that my dad had been hospitalized with an MI, and then I flew back. At that time, they were living in Harrisburg. Um, He underwent uh, a bypass surgery after the anterior MI. But anyway, we have a strong family history. But he's he's doing well actually after all these years, despite uh, the early coronary disease. So what was he doing? He,
0: he was just finishing his schooling in India. He was this was basically I want to come to the United States to get more education, and that, that was that was kind of how the whole thing happened. That's
1: right. I mean, in my family, um, there had been a couple of people, um, believe it or not, that had come to the U.S. to to get advanced degrees. Uh, one in the 1950s at Cornell, and another at the University of Wisconsin, a PhD. And my father, I think, had been quite inspired by that. And he was a wonderful student in India, had done a bachelor's in engineering, a master's in engineering. And I think he had always had this dream of kind of higher education in the United States. So in 1973 or 74, he applied to a bunch of schools in the U.S., and then was given um, acceptance to the University of Pittsburgh, and then just literally came to this country, he still tells a story, with $50. And my mom and my sister, younger sister, uh, she was an infant at the time, uh, the three of them came and settled in Pittsburgh, and then, as I said, brought uh, the, my brother and me uh, five years later.
0: So that's pretty unconventional, at least by you know modern U.S. standards. I can't imagine leaving my... My, two of my kids on a different continent and not seeing them for five years.
1: Well, that's, that, that's so I have three kids. Uh, so they're 16, 14 and 11 now. And this just hit me a couple of years ago when my kids were that age. And I thought to myself, like, I'm actually not sure that I'd be able to leave in that way for and not see them literally for five years. It, may, it might be easier nowadays, of course, with all the communication advances. But back then it was like super challenging, right? Literally, like in my village in India where I grew up at that time, no running water, no phones and electricity that worked like a couple of hours a day or a few hours a day and lots of blackouts. So it was way different. But yeah, they, 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 you know, he had a drive to get higher education in the U.S. and it brought him here. And ultimately, you know, I'm very grateful because he was able to bring us all here and give us all this opportunity.
0: It all worked out amazingly well. But do you remember at the time feeling how you felt? Were you like scared or angry or?
1: No, I I actually, I don't have any anger. I didn't, I don't recall any anger, um, mainly because we were very well cared for by my grandparents. And actually in my community in India, there's a long tradition of men um, leaving India to go abroad abroad and leaving um, the spouse and the children behind. And so, in my my community, basically, were kind of moneylenders in much of Southeast Asia, in Rangoon, um, in Saigon, uh, Singapore, Malaysia. In fact, my grandparents on both sides, the men, uh, had settled in those countries, uh, in those cities, uh, in the 50s, 60s, 70s, and uh, and had a a business um and, and so so i think there's this there's this tradition i guess of people leaving and then having the the spouse and the grandparents take care of the children and so maybe that was why i didn't really feel any feel that much different
0: it's, it's interesting because i i keep thinking about it in the, you know sort from of the context of being a spoiled american and having a spoiled american kids and What they would think if we just disappeared because it wasn't just your dad, right? I mean, you just all
1: three. Yeah, yeah. it's amazing. But I but I think I think it is this this history in our community of this happening. It's actually interesting because like my my grandfather on my mom's side um, was in Saigon uh, for 30 years and left right in the Vietnam War time. Uh, my grandfather, on my father's side, uh, was settled in Malaysia, Kuala Lumpur, for most of his life. So, yeah, I think I think uh, that probably impacted the way I viewed things.
0: Well, it obviously worked out. You came here. You were clearly a gifted student. Found your way, you know, to college, and then ended up here in in Boston for medical school. And and what you described a little bit that your dad, you know, had this heart attack. Although that that was later. What what was your initial drive to go to medicine? Do you remember? Mm-hmm.
1: Yeah, I, um, i always been interested, you know, even going back to high school. Um, but I also was quite interested in business, actually. So when I entered college at the University of Pennsylvania, I entered in the Wharton School and was not sure which way I wanted to go, uh, to do a business degree or do life sciences. And, um, and it was actually, I did a summer internship after uh, freshman year in college uh, in Wall Street um, in New York. I lived in Park Slope in Brooklyn well before Park Slope, I think, it was so hip. And actually, it was that experience that kind of showed me that, that I actually probably preferred uh, the life sciences a bit more than that kind of pure investment. So, I ended up uh, switching out of uh, undergraduate at the Warden School and to the College of Arts and Sciences and ended up finally majoring in history, um, but continued my pre-med requirements all the way through and and then ended up entering Harvard Medical School.
0: And so you came here, you did medical school, you decided you were going to do medicine. Was cardiology something that came during residency or did you come into residency thinking, I want to do cardiology?
1: No. I, during medical school, I wrestled with a, a few different options. Actually, it was general surgery, neurosurgery, or internal medicine. Within internal medicine, I was interested in both cardiology and and endocrinology, actually, and diabetes. And the first decision was surgery versus no. And I did a bunch of rotations in surgery, actually, like sub-internship in both Mass General and the Brigham in general surgery, and also sub-internship in neurosurgery at MGH, as well as the Brigham. And these are pretty intense rotations. And what I realized was I liked the idea of being a surgeon, but I did not actually enjoy the day-to-day activities of a surgeon. So once I realized that, I moved to internal medicine. And then um, uh, it was a, a close call, I think, between diabetes and uh, endocrinology and cardiology. But ultimately, what drew me to cardiology was the fact that, you know, there's many, many options in terms of diagnosing a disease. But for each diagnosis you made, there was also a very compelling treatment option, either medicine or inter- interventions. And so uh, that's really what drew me to cardiology.
0: And at that point in your young career, you were deciding you were going to do cardiology, matching into cardiology, you still hadn't done a lot of science. When did that wake up in you?
1: Yeah, my, my science training. So I did, a, I did a little bit in college. I was a work-study student uh, with Jennifer Punt doing T-cell immunology I had done many of each of the summers in college. I had done um, lab work, uh, one doing actually HIV research at the the University of Pittsburgh, um, and then a summer at the NIH, actually, between the first and second year of medical school. And then I did take a year off in medical school and do full-time research, molecular biology research. But yeah, I I had done those kind of experiences, but didn't really know what um, kind of a life of science would be like. Uh, And so you know, I did all my clinical training, and uh, as you know, in cardiology, typically there's a research requirement. So I did internal medicine. I did cardiology, uh, clinical training. I did a year as chief resident. So this brought me to 2003. And so from 97 to 2003 is when all this clinical training happened. And in 2003, um, I decided to take up a, a research position at the Framingham Heart Study and and this this kind of came out of an interest in residency in genetics in 97 when i started residency the human genome was not even sequenced and interesting was that in you know we're asked to apply to cardiology with relatively a, a, an interest in something right in, in a research area and so at that time i came up with a plan of focusing on the genetics of common complex disease. Uh, this was now 1998, kind of uh, the end of internship. And I uh, had started working with um, Chris O'Donnell, who was recruiting patients at Mass General Hospital who had, hot, who had been hospitalized with a heart attack at a young age. I actually I'd worked with Callum McCrae, and the two of them in recruiting patients when I was an intern, junior, senior, uh, and in, in during my clinical years of cardiology as well. So that got me really quite interested in this kind of genetics concept, and I had done all this recruitment, and wanted to leverage the several hundred patients that we'd recruited with early MI. And the sequence uh, had been completed in 2000-2001, the human genome sequence, and there was a lot of excitement about common complex diseases, uh, where it was kind of uncharted territory, There was a lot understood about monogenic diseases from the previous 20 years of work, uh, but less in terms of common complex. So that's what I decided to kind of go into the genetics of common complex diseases. And the question during my clinical training was, where could I get the best research experience to learn what's necessary to answer questions in that field? Uh, And the the main question was really, what's the inherited basis for heart attack? And so I realized that there are two skills that were needed. One— is kind of population science, which was a pretty established field at the time, so epidemiology. Uh, and the other was emerging the field of emerging tools of human genetics. Um, and so I did a combined research experience, uh, two years uh, at the Framingham Heart Study from 2003 to 2005, and then um, uh, in the background, 2003 to 2007, I was also at the Broad Institute uh, learning human genetics. And I think we first kind of met somewhere around that time, in 2002 or 2003, at the Bar Harbor course um, that was put up by NHLBI on genetics of common complex diseases. It was a week-long course. I distinctly remember golfing with you and Tim Isimis. Um But anyway, so, yeah, so 2003 to 2007 was the research training.
0: Yeah, I remember the time well because it was just before my oldest daughter was born. And my wife was very uncomfortable with me being in Bar Harbor, Maine. <laughs> and being in the like late <laughs> stages of being pregnant. Um, but that was a fun course, and I do remember you coming up to me and saying that you'd read this paper, because I had initially dabbled in in very you were, rudimentary... You were quite famous
1: for well, the, the glycoprotein 2B3A uh, polymorphism paper. Yeah. I in, think in New England Journal as a medical student.
0: Yeah, it was, it was interesting, because I think that experience made me decide that I didn't want to do human genetics, um, because I felt like... It was too random, and at the time it was too random. I mean, it was, we were,
1: it was very random. We, there were a lot of
0: we had a single snip, right? I mean, and it was you know statistically completely underpowered, and, um, and obviously never held up. But it was a great experience at the time. So, tell me a little bit about your time at, at Framingham. So, this was going and getting fundamentals of epidemiology and statistics. And what else were you doing while you were there? You were learning how to build cohorts. What was, the, what was that time?
1: Yeah, the Framingham Heart Study, um, you know, as you know, is this kind of crown jewel in terms of U.S. Um, observational research started in the late 40s uh, and has really taught us most of what we know about at least the risk factors for coronary heart disease and um, And so it was really a privilege to train there uh, from 2003 to 2005. And they have a long tradition of fellows coming through. And there are really two parts to the training. One is a a service component where you actually um, examine the participants uh, and interview the participants that are coming in for their exam. Um, There are three generations of uh, participants. And I was lucky enough actually to be there when the third generation was initially being recruited. Um, So this is the original cohort's kids' kids. And there are about 3,200 people that were recruited starting in 2003. And I think I personally examined 800 of the 3,200 over the two years. Um, But that involved uh, administering a questionnaire and then doing a physical exam. Framingham is one of the few studies where physicians actually still do the physical examination, blood pressure and so forth. So so that was the service component. And typically, three mornings a week, we'd be in clinic, uh, which is kind of right downstairs from the research uh, floor. And then the rest of the time was actually to do research. And so I kind of fashioned my own experience where I did some observational epi with the mentors there, Vasan Ramachandran, Chris O'Donnell, Dan Levy. And so when I finished my Framingham Fellowship, I realized I still needed a couple more years. I hadn't had that kind of seminal observation that I was Interested in and it was uh, making. and also that was around the time when we were transitioning from individual variants or small groups of variants to going genome wide. So I had a you know kind of unconventional, I would say postdoctoral training where I had a mentor at Framingham, Chris O'Donnell, and I had two mentors at the bro, Joel Hirschhorn and David Altshuler. So I really credit all three of them with kind of who I am in terms of my research. And, uh, David in particular was leading, um, the world in terms of moving to a genome-wide approach in terms of genome-wide association studies. And so in 2005, he was executing on, uh, what was, ended up being one of the first such studies to be done for diabetes. But David, as many many people know, is an incredibly generous mentor and he in that study, the first GWAS for diabetes, about fifteen hundred cases fifteen hundred controls, there was all these other secondary traits that were available: um, blood pressure, measures of insulin levels and and then lipids and so I ended up leading um, the secondary analysis of of all the lipid traits across the three thousand people. And that was ended up being kind of the base for a lot of my uh, future work, um, that first uh, initial study. So that took us to about 2006, seven, where we completed that initial study. Then I ended up do- leading a larger study on lipid levels and genetics and about 8,000 people um, called the Global Lipids Genetics Consortium, this consortium I established. And um, so that's kind of the history.
0: So you were really focused on the genetic. Program underlying variations in lipids at that time, not as not specifically looking at at heart attack as an outcome. Is that right?
1: That's right. So the, my initial years were all uh, biomarkers, you know, and particularly lipids. And then, you know, we we had done this initial project going back to again 1997, uh, which we call Pcad, Premature Coronary Artery Disease Study at ha- Mass General. So there are about I don't know as I said about 500 people that we'd recruited who were young and had an MI. And that those samples were kind of sitting around. And, I mean, I, my overall goal over the years had been to actually think about heart disease, coronary heart disease, the clinical disease and the genetics of it. And the risk factors were kind of one entree in, right? So I actually had, going pretty far back, this kind of triangle as kind of the, the vision for research. And in, in one corner of the triangle is DNA sequence variant, another corner of the triangle is blood lipid levels or risk factors more generally. And then the third corner of the triangle is heart attack. And you could imagine a DNA variant might lead to heart attack through one of those risk factors. Um, so kind of a two-arrow path or a DNA variant may directly lead to heart attack without going through existing risk factors. That's the mental model for our research over the last you know, 15, 20 years. So the initial work was kind of going on the path from DNA variant to blood lipids to heart attack. And then right around 2005, six, we were able to secure the resources to directly look at the DNA variant to heart attack path without going through risk factors. And that's an interesting story, actually. And again, it's, it's a story around kind of mentoring and generosity and so forth. So this is around 2005. The first GWASs have been published. Then the NHLBI put out a call for research studies, GWASs, in for heart, lung, and blood phenotypes. And I decided to say, why don't we go in and do a study for heart attack directly, you know, early heart attack, premature heart attack, because genetics plays a larger role when disease occurs at a younger age. So I convinced David to help let me write the grant and work with him. And, of course, I couldn't be the PI because I was just still a fellow. So so David and I kind of did this together, and David was the PI of the grant. And we wrote this together, and it was really one of the most exhilarating experiences in my life where we ended up pulling together, you know, four, five different groups from all over the world, Malmo, Sweden, Finland, uh, actually Seattle, Italy, our group, um, that had collected premature coronary disease cases and controls over 20 years uh, we proposed a study of um, several thousand cases, several thousand controls, which was a super expensive study at the time. I think four or five million dollar study. And then, um, you know, work like crazy to write this grant, uh, submit it. And then we were awarded the the grant. And so we started executing uh, right around 2006, assembling all the samples, doing the genotyping here at the Broad and then that was our first my first uh, major published study i think in terms of heart attack genetics which was uh, a gwas for premature mi published in nature genetics i think in 2009
0: all right i want to back up a little bit because it, i think it's important to understand a little bit of the technical nature of what you're doing so let's just take lipids as an example we'll come back to mi so previous to your work before 2000 say there was a lot known about the genetics the monogenetic basis of inherited lipid disorders but there wasn't much known about complex genetic regulation of lipids so the contribution that you guys made was to to that but explain the nuts and bolts of a GWAS study what does that what does that mean
1: yeah i mean i think you can take a step back and say uh, for most traits there is a heritable component right um so if most things we see in clinical practice whether it be blood pressure or cholesterol or or disease risk there's a component that comes from the DNA. And our question has been, can we isolate the specific DNA variants, the DNA letters that contribute to the genetic component to cholesterol, for example? What was known before was that there are some spelling changes in the DNA that some people have that uh, dramatically alter cholesterol levels, for example. And those spelling changes happen in specific genes like the LDL receptor, for example. And if you happen to inherit one of those spelling changes from your family, you would lead to very high cholesterol levels, often early in life. So that was called the monogenic model, mono meaning single gene. And so a spelling change in a single gene, basically responsible for the trait of interest. Well, it turns out, if you look at cholesterol levels in the population, those single letter spelling changes, the monogenic Component doesn't explain much of the genetic component in the, to cholesterol variation in the population. It's a small fraction. So then the question becomes, well, what's, what is the missing genetic component then if it's not due to these monogenic variations? And that's kind of what we have addressed. And the approach is looking at not rare spelling changes, but rather spelling changes that are common in the population, so-called polymorphisms, And asking, could they be responsible for cholesterol-level variation in the population? And the analysis is relatively straightforward. So, let's say you have 3.2 billion letters of DNA sequence. Most of those letters don't vary between people. Um, Some vary very commonly between people. Roughly, I don't know, 10 million spots, let's say, of the 3 billion commonly vary between people. And let's take a single letter, a single spot in the genome. And so at that spot, let's say 70% of the people carry one letter, and 30% carry an alternate letter, a spelling change. And the analysis for a GWAS goes like this. You take that spot, and you measure that spot in, let's say, I don't know, 10,000 people. You also have the cholesterol levels in all 10,000 people. And You measure, and you see that 70% of the people at that spot carry the letter A, and 30% carry an alternate letter, let's say, G. And um, the analysis is literally just comparing the cholesterol levels in the people who carry the A versus the G, and seeing if there's a difference. If there's a difference, a statistically significant difference, then you can say that that letter is correlated with cholesterol levels in the population. Now, when you do that genome-wide, 10 million different spots, at each spot doing this exact analysis, what you'll find is that for most spots in the genome, the cholesterol level doesn't vary between the two letters at that site. But for a small fraction of the letters, there is significant difference. And so a GWAS study, genome-wide association study, is simply this correlation analysis, spot by spot, uh, polymorphism by polymorphism, across the genome for a given trait. I want to pause and
0: recap a bit here, because this is really important. The goal of this work, of Sake's life's work, is to understand the genetic basis underlying the risk for heart attack. We know that heart attack risk is increased by smoking or diabetes, but how much of that risk, the risk of heart attack, is driven by the genes you inherit from your parents? Before Sig tried to tackle that very important problem, he started by first trying to understand how genes control cholesterol levels. While we have known that cholesterol is a risk factor for heart disease, and we have also known that there are a handful of rare genetic causes for high cholesterol that also increase the risk of heart attack, nobody had previously tried to untangle how multiple genes contribute to cholesterol levels and ultimately heart attack risk. As Sake described, our genes are carried in DNA, and those genes are coded by 3.2 billion letters, either A, C, T, or G, that are strung together. Sake's mentor, Dr. David Altschuler, used new technology in the late 1990s to determine that roughly 10 million of those 3.2 billion letters represented spots where there was significant variation. That is, almost all the people in the world have the same letter, either A, C, T, or G, at each of 3.2 billion DNA letters. But for 10 million of them, there's variation. For example, 70% may have a T, while 30% may have an A. David called these spots single nucleotide polymorphisms, or SNPs, which is a fancy way of saying they are single spots in the genome where there is variation from normal. But what David and others soon realized is that these spots were not mutations in the traditional sense. They mostly did not change the function or even the amount of the proteins they coded for, but they did act as a tool, a signpost, that could permit geneticists to map a disease or other trait to a precise location in the genome. By comparing the frequency of a trait or a disease in a population of people stratified by their genetic code at these SNPs, they could effectively paint a picture of how that trait or disease associates with different regions of our DNA. It's called mapping. In the early part of Sake's career, he used these techniques to map the areas of our genome, our DNA, that were associated with different levels of blood cholesterol. Later, he came back to find which regions were associated with risk of heart attack. And as we'll hear, the first set of experiments informed the second. Or put another way, the second set of experiments looking at risk of heart attack validated the first set looking at cholesterol levels. There was a lot of overlap. This is not surprising, but it was important. And as we will hear, this not only further bolsters our ability to say that gene X or gene Y is associated with higher cholesterol levels and associated with heart attack risk, but it lends more credence to support the notion that higher cholesterol increases the risk of heart attack. It causes it. And this is what Sake gets at when he discusses causal inference, which is at the heart of best-known method. How do we determine what factor or factors cause or prevent a disease of interest? And how do we make decisions given the available evidence, especially when the evidence is weak or does not exist? So, okay, so you sort of alluded, alluded to this. You, your first set of experiments was to understand the genetic underpinning their basis of variations in lipid levels, and that was because there had been a long-standing belief that these variations in lipids led to to changes in risk for heart attack. You weren't just interested in understanding variations in lipids for the sake of lipids. There was a connection there. And the first set of experiments you did, did that. And then you said, All right, well, I actually want to look at the disease itself. And I want to come back to how you got to that point. But in a big picture sense, how much did the first or the second set of experiments validate the first set of experiments? In other words, did you see a lot of the same players showing up in that uh, 95 genes you found in the lipid study that you then found in the heart attack study?
1: That's a great question. So this gets to, I think if I had to summarize, like what have we learned from the 15 years of work on the genetic studies of lipids? You know, let's leave aside the heart attack part of it. What are the key insights? And they're just a couple. And one has to do with this interrelationship between genetic variation in lipid levels and risk for disease, risk for heart attack. And this causal inference idea. So, as you know, most of our hypotheses in terms of what causes disease initially come from observational epidemiology. So, a variable calculated or measured in the blood, typically, is correlated with the disease risk in the population. So, biomarker X is correlated with disease Y. And that's been done for LDL cholesterol, the cholesterol in the LDL fraction, HDL cholesterol, and blood triglycerides going back, you know, 50 years. And there's a big issue, right, um, in terms of these observational data, biomarker X is correlated with disease Y. That can be because X causes Y, which is typically what people want you to kind of take away. But it could also be because Y causes X, so the disease process actually Changes X, and that's called reverse causation. But more commonly, X is correlated with the Y in the population because of some intermediate factor, a confounder, or a, another causal factor that relates both to X and Y, and that's the true source of an, the association. Let's say let's call that Z. And with observational epidemiology, you basically can't distinguish between those three possibilities. Does X directly lead to Y? Or is it reverse causation? Or is there some other factor Z that is actually responsible for the correlation between X and Y in the population? So how do you get around that? Well, in humans, causal inference is quite challenging. One way to get around it is actually test that hypothesis in mice or some other model system. And that can give you very important clues, but it has limitations as well. What about causal inference in people? Well, the gold standard for causal inference in people is a therapeutic trial. So you figure out, let's say, higher level of X is correlated with higher disease risk, Y. And you want to test the hypothesis that X causes Y. Well, let's find a way to lower X medicine, for example, and then give that medicine to half the people and the other half give placebo. When you do that, you even out all potential confounders between the two groups with the randomization up front, you follow them over time, and you see what happens to disease Y in the treated versus untreated groups. With a causal factor, what you would see is that uh, the biomarker X goes down with the medicine treatment. The biomarker X does not go down with placebo. And then disease rate goes down with medicine treatment and biomarker X going getting lower. So that would be a causal factor then afterwards. Well, if you look at this model... Of treatment with LDL, it's beautiful. There are like four or five different ways to lower LDL now, and they all work in terms of reducing disease risk, uh, heart attack risk, and so really establishing LDL as a causal factor for coronary heart disease. Now, it's very hard and time-consuming and expensive to develop a medicine for every biomarker you're wondering whether it's causal or not. So, there's another approach ahead of randomized control trials that's been developed over the last, let's say, 20 years. Um, that's human genetics, using human genetic variation as a tool to understand if biomarker X is causal or not. And the concept is very straightforward. A, a DNA variant that changes the biomarker lifelong should also change disease risk. And that's the concept, is that you try to find a DNA perturbation, essentially, a natural DNA perturbation of that biomarker, and ask, do people who carry that DNA perturbation have disease risk changed in the way you expect if the biomarker was causal? So let's take the LDL analogy. You're wondering whether LDL is causal or not. Okay, fine. You go to people who have a mutation that naturally elevates their LDL lifelong, And you compare heart attack rates in those people compared to the group of people who don't carry that variant. And it turns out that's actually quite analogous to a randomized controlled trial because the people who carry the mutation and those who don't are alike in all other characteristics except for that LDL. And that's because the DNA variant is given to you from your parents in a very random process, meiosis. And so it doesn't track, it typically doesn't track with things like socioeconomic status and all this other stuff. So that's the whole experiment in terms of using genetics for causal inference. You try to find a DNA variant that perturbs that biomarker you're wondering is causal or not, and then ask if people who carry that DNA variant also have a commensurate change in disease risk. So that's been done for LDL. So, DNA mutations in a number of genes, and in fact, almost any gene that raises LDL cholesterol, people who carry those mutations have increased risk for heart attack. Conversely, DNA mu- variants that lower LDL lifelong, some people carry those. These are like naturally occurring. Those individuals have lower risk for heart attack compared to those who don't carry the variant. And this is not just for one gene. It's like I said, almost any gene that changes LDL cholesterol. So, this case for LDL as a causal factor for coronary heart disease is, it's a a very tight case. It comes from the treatment trials, from the human genetics, from experimental models, so mouse models of atherosclerosis, and then also initially started with observational epidemiology going back to the late 40s and early 50s with the Framingham study showing serum total cholesterol levels are correlated with increased risk for heart attack over time. Now, I started all this by saying, what are the key lessons we've learned from our lipids genetics work? Well, one of the first hypotheses we explored was, what about for HDL cholesterol? Is HDL a causal factor? So it's called the good cholesterol because higher levels are correlated with decreased risk for heart attack. But whether that's a cause-and-effect relationship or not, believe it or not, it was still unclear. It was unclear when we started a bunch of years ago. So we decided to do a genetic test of the HDL hypothesis, and that test was simple. We found a mutation in one gene that naturally elevated HDL cholesterol lifelong in a group of people that carry that mutation. It's about 15% higher HDL they had. So... Based on the reasoning I described earlier with the LDL, if HDL was causal, then the people who carried the mutation that elevated their HDL lifelong, they should have lower risk for heart attack, right? And that's what we did. We tested whether they did or did not. And remarkably, what we found was the individuals who carried the HDL-raising mutation had the same risk for heart attack as those who didn't carry the mutation. This was a big surprise, and we actually had a lot of trouble publishing this paper. And what this work suggested is that maybe the HDL corner disease relationship was not a causal one, but actually that the levels of HDL were marking something else. So that's probably one of the probably maybe the most important finding from our lipids genetics work is that is that HDL cholesterol may not be a causal factor for atherosclerosis, but rather be a non-causal marker. So this brings us to, I think, the second major finding from our lipids genetics work, which is, if HDL is non-causal, why is the epidemiology so robust? Why is it in every study higher levels of of HDL are correlated with decreased risk for heart attack and conversely lower level of HDL correlated with increased risk? Well, I mean, I think any practicing clinician or most patients actually know that the levels of HDL in the blood track with lots of other things. Obesity, smoking, physical activity, insulin resistance. And a a very important blood biomarker that it tracks with actually is the triglyceride-rich lipoprotein, so triglyceride levels. People who have high HDL often have low triglycerides. And conversely, people who have low... HDL have high triglycerides. So we wondered whether the triglycerides were actually the important factor, the, the Z that I mentioned in the causal diagram, diagram earlier. So we did a, we did a genetic study um, to look at this question and found that DNA variants that alter triglyceride levels affect disease risk, coronary heart disease risk, in a manner quite similar to the LDL relationship. And that was held true even if you account for the effect of any variant on HDL. So this really suggested to us that triglyceride-rich lipoproteins are probably the key causal link to explain the observational epidemiology for HDL and, and MI. What are the practical implications of this? Well, there are two major implications. One is, given that HDL may not be causal... There's a prediction from the genetics, which is medicines designed to raise HDL cholesterol exclusively would not work in terms of reducing risk of heart attack, because the genetics suggest that HDL-MI is not a causal relationship. So when we published a genetics paper in 2012 suggesting that HDL may not be causal, again, there was this prediction in terms of the pharmacology. So it turns out in the subsequent couple of years— there have been a number of studies that have tested the pharmacologic test basically of the HDL hypothesis. And study after study, medicines that raise HDL cholesterol have failed to lower risk of heart attack in randomized control trials. So the practical implication is that maybe we don't want to actually develop medicines to raise HDL with the hopes of lowering risk of heart attack. Conversely, the other practical implication is for the triglyceride-rich lipoprotein. So we think that triglyceride-rich lipoproteins, the human genetics suggests that it's likely a causal path. And the corollary then would be that medicines designed to lower triglyceride-rich lipoproteins might work to reduce risk of heart attack. And those tests of that hypothesis, the pharmacologic tests of that hypothesis, are ongoing right now.
0: Okay, this is really important, so I want to go back and see if we can just summarize it and touch on a couple of key points, because this is important for a lot of things that, that I think about. So, one of them is just this idea that, you know, we as physicians and as human beings have to make decisions with imperfect information. And mm-hmm. for all the reasons you've outlined, epidemiology is imperfect information. So, here we were not that long ago being taught that LDL cholesterol is bad cholesterol. You want to do everything you can to get it down. Yeah. HDL cholesterol is good cholesterol. You want to do everything you can to get it up. Yeah. And basically, we were taught to ignore tri- triglycerides mm-hmm. unless they were extremely high. And, so that was based on the epidemiology. The epi- epidemiology, as you say, was was robust, and it was over decades. And it was assumed that would play out as something caused them. But the truth was that assumption is prob- was probably a mistake. But yet we have to act. So during all that time when we were training, lots of things happened. One is the statins came on the market, and that was the sort of beginning of the sort of nail in the coffin that LDL is actually really – Causing heart attack risk. That's right. And and I remember, you know, when the initial tri- big trials came out, that there were some people who were surprised that they thought that there were that there was going to be a similar story to other markers that were shown to be associated, but it not not causal. At the same time, I do remember vividly trying to raise people's HDL, In, and you could do that by telling them to exercise more. I remember telling people to drink alcohol, and then there were a series of drugs that were developed to try. To raise people's age. In fact, I think there were drugs that were actually HDL cholesterol itself, right? That people were infusing to test to see if that would reduce heart attack risk. But your paper really blew the whole thing up. It all kind of came together around the same time, but it became very clear that, that HDL cholesterol was not actually causing or increased levels of HDL cholesterol were not protecting people from, from heart attack. And that, that was fundamental. But the question I guess I have for you then is, I mean, it was an enormous body of work that led to your finding, and then it happened concomitant with all these drug trials that were aimed at raising HDL. That showed that that didn't have an effect, and if anything, maybe had a negative effect. And whatever positive effect was probably due to the LDL lowering as opposed to the HDL raising. But how do we not step in that pile of dog do again? Like how how do we actually make reasonable judgments
1: before we have
0: all of that information going forward?
1: Yeah, I mean, that's a great question. I mean, I do think we've we had it kind of backwards for the last 30 years in terms of the relative importance of HDL and triglycerides. Um, but as you point out, you know, when we were in medical school, when you and I were in medical school, you know, I, I trained from um, 92 to 97, I was taught first year of medical school that anything that raised HDL cholesterol must be good for you. And the lifestyle parts, the lifestyle components or the lifestyle interventions that change HDL They're good for you for lots of other reasons, too. So it's important to exercise and be lean and not smoke. Those things will raise HDL, but there are lots of other benefits. I think this causal inference piece is a huge aspect of biomedicine. In fact, I think the biggest failure of biomedicine is the inability or the lack of attention to this biomarker X uh, correlated with disease Y. And that does not automatically mean causal relationship. Now we're taught that all the time. Like in you know, when you train in medicine, you know, everybody knows there are limitations to observational epidemiology. That does not stop people from actually um making that leap. Time after time. Yeah. I think this is the biggest issue in biomedicine. Well
0: it may be the biggest issue in biomedicine, but if it's the biggest issue in biomedicine, it's like 10x the biggest issue in nutrition. And right, right. And, and again there, you know, we're sort of in the dark ages when it comes to, you know, robust, real solid evidence about any one nutritional intervention that may or may not be beneficial or harmful. And so we're we're stuck there having to actually really do our best. But what I'm trying to do is to step back and say, well, how can we learn from yeah. the mistakes that were were made? Yeah,
1: I agree. I mean, so what could what could you have done better? Well, I think, you know, it's a bit well, I, I don't think they're, they're clear mistakes. I think it's being a bit more humble about what where we are in the field. You know, so I think that, you know, I think LDL uh, until the 1994 trial, right? I remember being in second year medical school and seeing the, you know, the initial statin trials and had this dramatic benefit in terms of lowering risk of coronary events. And that was really the first nail in the coffin, I would say, in terms of the causal nature, definitive for uh, for LDL and MI. And so until then, I think it was, you know, still in the realm of hypothesis, you know? But for HDL, we're still in the realm of hypothesis, um, and I think that we we should just realize where we are in terms of the evidence base for any given relationship. And at the same time, you do have to integrate. I, I like to integrate four lines of evidence uh, for any of these biomarker X was correlated with disease Y. Uh, one is observational epidemiology; the other is experimental evidence, either in cells or model systems the third is human genetics and the fourth is randomized controlled treatment trials and we should look at the evidence base for each along each of those four domains for any given relationship and just be honest about where we are
0: all right so i want to ask you to speculate a little bit cuz there's an area you, you know where i'm going to go here cuz we've talked about this a little bit before but it, you've outlined a beautiful picture of the genetic regulation of lipids and genetic regulation of risk of heart attack one thing that we're we're missing still at least in a real detailed way is a picture of the interaction between genes and the environment. And one area of the environment that I'm particularly interested in is food or nutrition. And so one thing that we've been thinking a lot about is go off and um, change the way you eat. And that change then has an effect on some biomarker, let's just say LDL cholesterol. And so there are certain people who will go off and change the way they eat and their LDL cholesterol goes up. We we still don't know what that means, right? We really don't have a a way to predict exactly what's going to happen to their risk of heart attack. But, but again, that experiment may never happen. And if it does, it's not going to happen for decades. So what do we do in the meantime? How do you think about that?
1: Well, I actually think we do have a way. Okay, um, good. I, <laughs> I mean, I think, I think that it's pretty clear um, that for... For every forty milligram deciliter lowering of LDL, you're basically gonna get about a twenty two percent reduction in risk. So then you just have to flip it the other way around. And say for every forty milligram, if if your intervention increases LDL by a certain amount, then there's a commensurate. That relationship, you know, that that slope of LDL change and heart attack disease risk, LDL change on the X-axis, heart attack um change on the Y axis is Pretty firm from many, many studies. Now you could argue that all those studies are statin treatment trials or PCS canine treatment trials or so they're all treatment trials, but it's a, it's a very linear relationship. So I think if you have an intervention that changes HDL by X, sorry, LDL by X, you're going to be able to predict pretty nicely how much heart attack rate should go up. Well.
0: I'm not going to argue with you, but I I will say that in this particular case, so you know, if you talk about this sort of low-carbohydrate diet, in that case, not everybody, but some people do see these enormous increases in LDL. And I guess we should really be formal about what we're talking about because there's a lot more to LDL today than there was 15 years ago. And I don't know what your opinion is about the different ways to look at it, but I guess it's really ApoB-containing lipoproteins. But those people often also have pretty dramatic decreases in triglycerides. And may also f- have increases in HDl cholesterol again, what that means no I, when you put the whole thing together is, i I totally
1: agree so th- so that increase in i guess I should be more more precise I think we can estimate what that increase in LDL is going to do in terms of disease risk. what we don't know is all these other benefits that you're describing of the lifestyle nutritional intervention the eat, the food intervention, which would be it sounds like let's say, anything, everything that goes with lowering your weight, which is pr- can be pretty dramatic in terms of health benefits. Diabetes, insulin resistance, the triglycerides, you name it. And presumably those are all beneficial. So the net of those two, I think, is what we don't know.
0: right? And that, that I guess, short of doing it long-term, I mean, you know what would go into doing a trial like that, and it's almost inconceivable that it could be done. I mean, it could, but it, it, to do it in a population of low-risk young people it would take decades. And so in the meantime, do you think there are tools that we could use, genetic tools specifically? I'm, get, I'm getting at this idea that yeah. maybe there's there's a gene environment yeah. thing here that you can sort of begin to unwind it a little bit. I
1: mean, I, I think it's a great idea, you know, but it's been very challenging to figure out um, the genetic component to, um, let's say, LDL response to this you know food intervention you know but it almost so, has to be genetic i mean well i, I guess let me yeah, put yeah, it but to the you question is what, how, what's the architecture of that? Well, that so you know what we lo- what you like is a what everybody would like you know would be if there's a single mutation in a gene that has a large effect on whether somebody's ldl goes up after a you know low carb high fat diet I'm pretty sure that's not going to be the case because basically almost every trait the architecture is complex. And only a small, very small amount of the genetic component to any trait is actually dominated by these single mutations of large effect. So there probably is a genetic architecture for your LDL response after a low-carb, high-fat diet. And what we don't know is, you know, is that a very complex architecture or is it a simple architecture? Got it. Now, one thing, though, is that if it's a simple architecture – You should be able to figure it out in, in like, 500 people, you know? So you just need 500 people that go on the diet, get all their LDLs six months out or whatever, three months out, and just do whole genome sequencing, all 500. If there's a rare mutation of large effect that determines whether your LDL goes up or down, you'll be able to figure it out in the the 500 people. And if it's more complex, what kind of numbers would you look at? Well, then you're looking at the kind of numbers we've looked at for LDL, just just LDL levels, Right. right? which is, you know, now we're up to a million people. But we started with, we found signals starting at about 3,000. Got it. Correlation does not imply causation.
0: It's a statement most of us have heard numerous times. Just because some factor A is associated with another factor B does not mean factor A causes factor B. There are all sorts of examples where factor B actually causes factor A. This is termed reverse causality. There are lots of tall people who play in the NBA so playing in the NBA must make you tall. But we know that playing in the NBA does not cause tall people. It's the other way around. There are other mistakes we make in judging causality. And therefore, it's important to build a case for or against causality based on robust scientific evidence. In this era of fake news, it's critical to do this well. A good example is the all-too-prevalent idea that vaccines cause autism. Sake recommends that for biology and medicine, we use four lines of evidence to assess causality. The first is the observational epidemiology. What is the association? Heart attack risk happens in people with high cholesterol. Does heart attack cause high cholesterol, or does high cholesterol lead to heart attacks? Or is there some third factor? Second is experimental evidence. For biology, this means cell or animal models. If you genetically engineer a mouse to have high cholesterol, what happens to that mouse's risk of developing blocked heart arteries? It goes up. Third is genetics. This is Sake's contribution, and he made a big one. He and his group tackled the association between cholesterol and heart attack risk. Before we dive in on this, I want to address the fourth. The fourth is Interventional Randomized Controlled Trials, or RCTs. We've heard a lot about these over the past few weeks, precisely because they are the gold standard level of evidence. But why is that? Well, mainly it's because they allow scientists to match up very similar populations of people and test what happens when you vary just one thing. Say in this case, you take 10,000 people who are at high risk for heart attack and give half of them a drug to lower cholesterol and the other half a sugar pill, placebo. And then you wait five years and look at how many heart attacks there were in the drug arm versus the placebo arm. Such trials have been done again and again, and have shown unequivocally, and over and over again, that multiple classes of drugs that lower cholesterol also lower the risk for heart attack. Sake and his group used genetics as a surrogate for an RCT, but instead of giving a drug to lower cholesterol, they used the natural variation afforded by genes, the genes we randomly inherited from our parents. And they found that LDL, or bad cholesterol, that had been associated with heart attack risk and has lots of supporting experimental evidence, also appears to cause heart attacks based on the genetics. In this case, the interventional drug trials had already been done. We already knew the answer, so no big surprise here. But where things got interesting was in the genetic experiments they did on two other kinds of lipids, HDL cholesterol, or what had been termed good cholesterol, and triglycerides. When Seik and I were medical students, the observational epidemiology and a lot of animal and cell-based experiments suggested that HDL cholesterol was protective. That is, higher levels reduced one's risk of having a heart attack, while triglycerides were neutral. They had no effect. Sake and his team turned all of that upside down, as their genetic experiments suggested exactly the opposite. Namely, high HDL cholesterol did not reduce the risk of heart attack, but instead was neutral. It was just a marker, just like wearing a size 15 shoe is a marker of an NBA basketball player, but did not actually directly affect the risk of heart attack. And at the same time, they showed that high triglycerides did cause increased risk of heart attack. And in this case, the gold standard experiments had not yet been done. But guess what? Now they have. And Sake and his team were right. This is so important because it matters whether high HDL reduces heart attack risk, We need to know that because we would not want to develop drugs to increase HDL cholesterol as a means to reduce heart attack risk if high HDL cholesterol was not in the causal pathway. Putting size 15 shoes on a rec league basketball team is not going to make them be able to compete in the NBA. I also pushed Sake about how we can avoid making the HDL triglyceride mistake again, but also how we can apply his best known methods to other questions, maybe outside of the cholesterol world, where there are not yet RCT data, say nutrition. Sake did not have all the answers, but he said something that is worth repeating. Be humble about what we know and what we don't know. I can't agree enough. He also thinks there may be ways to use genetics to get to answers to some of these important questions before we do the RCTs. What are the things that you think were the sort of, had the biggest impact on this amazing career you you've put together? What were the, individual events or circumstances or tools that you acquired or, um, choices or decisions you made to do something that you think going back, if you were advising a a young faculty member who's, you know, coming off and not that they're going to exactly replicate your career, but I'm trying to get at whether there was a, there were the consistent decisions that you made to do things in terms of risk or whatever it was that were important and that you can look back on and say, that was a really good decision.
1: Yeah, I th- I think to be honest, it boils down to one thing. I think it's it's really about picking an important problem and then applying a range of techniques to that problem and stay focused on that problem. What I find too often is people are doing things because things can be done rather than kind of what should be done. Like I focus like from a macro level, what's the most important problem that I could be working on and how am I going to solve that problem to really prioritizing almost daily this, with that same question in mind. Like, what's the most important thing I could be doing today to further that, you know? So, I started with, you know, again, a very simple question, which is, you know, what's the inherited basis for heart attack? And I think all, the other thing is that people get very caught up on, I have to find a niche for myself. This one thing that nobody else in the world is working on. I mean, I proposed a question that, like, most of the world cares about. It's not, like, a very unique question or something, you know, very clever. It's a very simple question, but we've stayed focused on it. And I think we've added to the literature and added to scientific contributions. So, I don't think it should be about niche. I think um, academic structure right now makes people narrow in on smaller and smaller things, ultimately things that maybe nobody cares about. To me, it's really about asking important questions and trying to get impactful answers and just keep focusing on that.
0: But you also, I mean, you're being humble, but you also put yourself in a position to be able to do
1: that. Yeah, absolutely. I I, I agree. And I think that, you know, as a physician scientist, that's probably what I can speak most to. Um, To be a a practicing doctor and do science, um, it's really about getting the right training. You know, it's about, there's no shortcut. You know, after I finished my clinical training, I spent like five years doing additional research training, and that was invaluable. And, of course, the other is uh, the environment. You know, I've been blessed to be in this amazing environment where, you know, I got the skills um, in the areas that I needed uh, and then have had tremendous um, mentorship and resources to be able to pursue the questions, the big questions.
0: All right, we can't not spend at least a few minutes talking about what's coming next for you. So um, I don't know if you want to tell the story. I don't know how much of the story you can tell, but, you know, you, again, had this amazing career and decided to take a right turn at the pinnacle, right? I mean, you could do anything. I was actually having dinner with a friend last night and talking about how you could do anything you want at this stage within the realm of it. Of academic medicine. I mean, you, you probably, I'm not just shoving sunshine up your ass, but you probably were in a position to be able to go off and be a college president or do something whatever you, you could do something really spectacular. And you decided to do something unconventional. Tell us how that all happened.
1: Um, yeah. I mean, I think, uh, thank you. But um, I see this as actually a natural extension of what we've done over the last um, 20 years. I've had one major goal which is to try to understand the genetic basis of heart attack and use that information to help people. And what we have learned from the last, let's say, 15 years in terms of the genes that cause heart attack, there are basically two major findings. One is that some people are extraordinarily high risk based on the genome. And two is that some people are naturally protected in terms of risk for heart attack. And it turns out, all those people who are protected they carry variants that naturally lower LDL and or triglyceride rich lipoproteins and to the extent that you can say this following thing, if your LDL and triglycerides were low lifelong you basically won't get a heart attack so with that insight in hand I realized that We're at a unique moment in time where we can develop a medicine that can basically confer protection against coronary disease. Essentially, transfer the benefit that nature gave just some small fraction of people through a DNA variant, transfer that benefit to a much larger fraction of the world. And that's what our company, Verve Therapeutics, is designed to do. It's really to reimagine the way we treat coronary heart disease. Right now, we focus on coronary heart disease in terms of chronic care, daily pills, twice a month injections, you name it. We want to reimagine the way we treat and really are looking to develop a one-time treatment, a one-time injection that would permanently lower one's cholesterol and triglyceride levels, thereby confer enduring protection against coronary heart disease. Now, in terms of the background, how, do I, how I got to this, so in 2016, as you may remember, Ethan, the American Heart Association had a competition called One Brave Idea to cure coronary heart disease. Well, this was our One Brave Idea. I uh, worked with Feng Zhang, um, one of the of kind of CRISPR fame. And Anthony Felipakis, a cardiologist uh, here at Broad and Brigham, the chief data officer of the Broad, to put together this application. And we came close, but we didn't end up winning the competition. We decided to go ahead and just do it. And so over the last three years, we've working with a former postdoc of mine, Kieran Musonuru at the University of Pennsylvania, he's done all the preclinical models and shown that a one-time injection into mice can permanently lower cholesterol and triglycerides for the life of the mouse. And now, last year, we decided to raise the funding to be able to take it to the next level. We closed our Series A last August, raising about $60 $60 million from a syndicate that included Google Ventures. They were the lead investor. And originally, I was just going to be the typical academic founder and advise from the sidelines. But then I realized, this is it. This is a unique opportunity. And what really crystallized to me, the the nature of the opportunity is describing this to my father-in-law and saying, hey, we're thinking about developing a one-time treatment that would permanently lower one's cholesterol and thereby, again, confer enduring protection. And I said, imagine if that was like safe, like perfectly safe, or just safe. Would you take it? And he said, of course. In fact, almost anybody I've talked to about this concept, their next comment goes something like, when can I get that at CVS? So this, as as you've commented on about this, this is a a long-term vision. I see this as a, you know, five to 20-year project really the next phase of my career to develop such a treatment and i think that you know genome editing is an incredibly exciting new therapeutic modality kind of like where monoclonal antibodies were in the early 80s and it might take you know 20 30 years to be commonplace as a treatment but think about how monoclonal antibodies went were in the 80s super expensive very early tech now, I think, over the last couple of years, more FDA-approved drugs or biologics than small molecules. I think that this is the way, or I suspect this is the way that genome editing is going to go. We already have seen tremendous progress in terms of genome editing in just five years for rare orphan diseases. And I think, ultimately, we see verve starting with such, such orphan diseases, genetic forms of very high cholesterol and early heart attack but then we have a phased development strategy where we're would extend out from those initial indications to ultimately hopefully the world
0: well so okay first of all what you've done is bold and not just unconventional it's almost unheard of and you describe the sort of typical academic founder model where you are part-time, but you keep your job, you have none of the risk of an early stage startup. I mean, you have a great team, you've got great funders, but the reality is that developing new companies is much like developing new drugs. Most of them fail. So you've done, I think, what's truly inspirational and putting all of your chips right in the middle of the table and saying, I'm all in on this thing. And and I think that probably gave your investors quite a bit of comfort and enthusiasm. So I want to give you credit for that. I I do want to come back to a brief discussion on two things you hit on, which I think are really important. So one is, I agree with you that genome editing for rare diseases is already and probably will be a tremendous asset. I think the question for me in my head, and the reason I'm not in your father-in-law's camp quite yet, is this weighing the unknown risks against the potential benefits. And so from my perspective, for a chronic disease, where there are already, as you already described earlier, Numerous very effective therapies that require taking a pill or an injection a couple times a month. I guess the question is, what would then make me comfortable to say, okay, there's all this unknown about, you know, off target, what all the other things that people talk about, what, where does that equation equal out where, where I feel like that risk is something that I would be willing to take for a a disease? for which there are already lots of other very effective options.
1: Yeah, just two points along that line. Yes, I think that initially we would be starting with a genetic forms of dyslipidemia where the risk-benefit calculus would be, there would be clinical equipoise. Now, uh, but we see a clear path to much larger, much broader populations. And the reasoning reason I'm so confident about that is a very simple observation. After a heart attack, what's the number one treatment to reduce the risk of a second heart attack. It's statin therapy. Okay, turns out that in randomized controlled trials of statin therapy, where the medicines are given for free at the end of one year, roughly 40% of people are not taking their statin therapy. This is like crazy. Why is that? Lots of reasons, you know, we can go into why people don't want to be reminded that they're sick, all this kind of stuff. So imagine coming in to the hospital, you have a heart attack, you get your stent, and you get a one time injection at the time of the heart attack, and permanently your LDL is lower. That's the kind of vision that I think we can get to. It'll take time, I think. You're Uh, absolutely correct. We have to be very clear and have appropriate levels of follow-up to show that the editing is precise, that there are no off-target effects, no unintended consequences. But in some sense, I find the idea of, in adults, altering and creating a condition that is altering the genome and creating a mutation, for example, that exists in people are ready and those individuals have lifelong lower LDL and are protected against heart attack, maybe a bit more precise actually than taking a small molecule that has all kinds of other effects all over the the body you know but anyway, so this is this is kind of where, where, mm-hmm. where we sit. I get it
0: and I see your vision and I and and again, the only thing I would say in response to that is that we have now 30 years of experience with that small molecule. And so we have a pretty good sense of the sort of safety and efficacy profile. And that's where I think we're still at early days yeah, for this. Yeah, I
1: think, I think that – but you're right. I think that's why I, I, I emphasize that this is a five- to 20-year vision, yeah. not a three-year vision. So do you have a – I don't want to get you in trouble.
0: and You emphasize very clearly this is for adults, but I can't help but think that you could bring your two worlds together here and take a child who has – polygenic risk score suggesting extraordinarily high risk for cardiovascular disease and potentially treat them at a time when, you know, it would be very unlikely that anyone would take a drug. Do you see a path towards being able to to do that, or is that just an impossible bar?
1: Yeah, I think the the, the bar there for safety, and again, would be very high, right? So, we don't see that. We, mm-hmm. we Verve is exclusively focused on genome editing in adults in individuals who can give consent for the procedure and themselves. mostly
0: at this point secondary prevention i mean just to kind of like nail that down a little bit i think bit.
1: the i think the initial group would be individuals who have extraordinarily high cholesterol and have had a heart attack okay uh, but then i think we can potentially progressively move out from there
0: awesome listen i cannot tell you how much i appreciate you sitting down with me and uh, i can't wait to hear how this whole thing turns out all of it turns out thank you thank you Sake is an old friend, and he is someone I admire tremendously. I also think he's been one of the most important contributors to our understanding of heart attack risk. And now he has made a bold decision to go out at the top of his game and try something new. I think it's like Michael Jordan taking up baseball after winning three NBA championships. But Jordan did not excel at baseball, and Sake would argue that this transition is a natural extension of his life's work and not a hard turn. Time will tell. But in the meantime, Sake has taught us a lot about medicine and biology. He's also taught us about methods, best-known methods. His work has helped to inform whether factors associated with disease risk are actually causal. And this may end up being the most important thing he has done. Because doing big RCTs is hard and expensive and takes a long time. So if there's a way to get an answer or get a hint at an answer, a reliable answer using other tools, say human genetics, Perhaps this will lead to more HDL moments, where something we think that might be associated with disease risk is actually not. And maybe we can even avoid making the mistakes in the first place. At Keto, we are laser-focused on understanding how nutrition affects cholesterol and how those changes in cholesterol affect risk of heart attack and other diseases. It will be incredibly important in forming the basis of making sound nutritional recommendations. We've been working hard here and are excited to share what we've learned soon. Again, four levels of evidence. Number one, the association. Number two, the cell and animal experiments. Number three, the genetics. And number four, the prospective randomized controlled trials. But in cases where number four can't happen or won't happen for years, maybe we can use genetics, just as Sake and his team did, to unravel the complex web of how nutrition affects cholesterol, and how those changes in cholesterol might affect the risk of heart attack. This is Best Known Method. A quick note to our listeners. This episode concludes the first season of Best Known Method. We'll be taking a few-week break. I want to thank you, our listeners, for tuning in every week and for sharing your thoughts and feedback with me on Twitter or elsewhere. It's been a phenomenal learning experience. Thanks also to the incredible guests who spoke with me over the past eight episodes, for giving me their time and insights. And thanks, lastly, to Noah Snyderman, of Voice Magic, without whom I could not even conceive of doing what we've done. I'm excited to announce that a new season of Best Known Method will be coming this fall. You can follow Keto on Instagram at keto.health, on Twitter at getketo, and you can follow me on Twitter at Ethan J. Weiss for updates. We've already got great guests lined up for next season and can't wait to be back at this in the fall. I'll speak
1: to you soon. And again, thank you for listening.